Over the next three weeks, we have an opportunity to really kind of drill down and look at and revisit our, our identity series here at Ridgecrest, which we do every other year. And so it's just the idea of what it looks like to grow, what it looks like to be a people who serve, and what it looks like to go with the gospel. And so we want to begin today with the aspect of uh, spiritual growth. Now, one of the interesting things, I think, when you look at uh, church and kind of Christian life in general, is that there should be this understanding that, that how we finish the race, that there's some difference in us. And so we can see this change that has been affected over the course of our lives. We can see ourselves growing uh, perpetually closer and closer and closer to Jesus. But one of the off observed things is that we recognize that we see people in their 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s who don't look markedly different than they did in the beginning. And in some cases, they look a great deal worse. They look a whole lot like a whole lot less like the person who came to faith than they are the person who is just kind of drugged through this world. And one of the things that we're going to see in this passage today, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. One of the things we're going to see in this passage is that you can just kind of put it this way, these things should not be so. It should be the rarity that we encounter somebody who's in their 50s, their 40s, or 30s, who's been a Christian for 20, 30 years, uh, for, or really for any length of time, who is not really resembling very much of a Christian at all anymore. And it's to do with the gracious investment of our God in us at the beginning of our salvation that carries us throughout the course of our Christian life. And it's just this amazing thing. So this is what I want us to do. I want us to read this passage together, Second Peter uh, chapter 1, 3 through 9, and then we'll move through and begin to make application and pray for the Spirit to give illumination. Peter writes and he says, His divine power has been granted to us, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The way this passage sets it up, and I want us to see this distinction clearly, is that verses 3 and 4 give us a clear indication of God's sovereign, gracious investment in us. And what we see in verses five through seven is in essence, the so what? Like, so what is on me or, or what then am I to do as a result of these things? And so human effort. And then in verses eight and nine, he kind of calls us back to this understanding of kind of evaluating or, or, or critical evaluation of where we are in our understanding. Think of it in terms of this. When you're, uh, when you're, Parents get together and, and, and everything comes together in terms of what is going to be you. Like your DNA is formed and fashioned. 
that this DNA is reporting a variety of things. And so it's going to determine your, your eye color. It's going to determine, uh, given some other factors, whether or not you retain your hair. It's, it's going to determine uh, just kind of overall health. It's going to determine uh, how big your feet are. It's going to determine a, a variety of things. But there's a whole host of other things that, that can impact that, Right? And so if you don't have a great diet, if, if you live on nacho cheese, Doritos, and bean dip, while these things are super tasty, they're not the best for you. And so uh, where otherwise a person with the same DNA might turn out to be you know, decently physically fit, you might be decently round. And, uh, and, and you may not peg out at the max height because you're not giving your body the right nutrients. And so what we find in terms of salvation is that God has infused you with the right spiritual DNA to grow to be a robust Christian. He's given it to you. Look at what he says in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given you everything you need in salvation. This is wonderful, but it's also uh, incredibly challenging because we recognize that frequently we don't live up to the example of all those things that he's, he's given us. And we're not also relying on the Holy Spirit that he's given us to guide us into these truths. So what do these things look like? Things that pertain to life and godliness. We recognize, first of all, that he's granted to us eternal life. That if, if you are a Christian, and by this I mean if you are a person who's recognized your sinfulness, you've recognized that the, the punishment of God, his just retribution on sin, it was coming towards you. And so you pled the blood of Jesus. You said, I want to be forgiven my sins. I confess that Christ is Lord. I understand that he died on account of my sins when he was raised three days later. And I believe in that and I walk in that and I trust in that. That if that is your testimony, if that is the thing that you say that you hold to, then for you, there's, there's waiting for you eternal life spent with God, an escape of judgment. You rest in the finished work of Jesus. We recognize as well in this that there is paired to it godliness, that God has given you everything you need concerning life and godliness that God has given to you in salvation the ability to be a godly person. God has given you everything you need in life to be a godly person. And some of us, we wake up on Monday morning and we look in the mirror and we stare at ourselves and we stare back at ourselves and we think, I am not the model of a godly person. And it's just Monday morning. And I recognize that Tuesday morning I wake up and I, and I feel even further from the glimpse of what I've been told that I was, further from the glimpse of what his scripture tells me that I am. And so we, we're wrestling with this, but we recognize that his truth is not failing. What his truth says is that he's given you all things. He's granted them to you. He's graciously bestowed them upon you. But are you going to walk in line of the things that he's given you? Or are you going to walk in line of the pressures of this world? Well, let's continue on the vein of, of the things that he's given to us. How has he given them to us? He's given them to us through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Quite simply, God has given you these things, all things that are necessary pertaining to life and godliness. He's given these things to you through Jesus. There's this great mistaken assumption that he's given these things to us on the basis of, of some future merit, some future goodness in us, or some held out potential, right? 
that, that, that Jeremy's going to be this amazing person. So God calls him to salvation. So Sarah's going to be this amazing person who's going to transform the world. So God has given to her salvation. Or he's going to be this good person that, that when he works these things out, he's going to be a person suitable for salvation. But no. It's through our coming to know Jesus, to be united in this faith tethered to him. That in our knowledge of God, our coming to know God through Jesus, he has called us to his own glory and excellence. Quite simply, it's this understanding that God has given you everything you need to be a godly person and to live forever. And he's done this in the person of Jesus as you draw closer to Jesus. He's conforming you and he's changing you. 1 Peter 2.9 says that he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God calls us out of our former manner of existence and our former waywardness. He calls us from death into life. He calls us from sinfulness into holiness. And this is the trajectory for every Christian. This is the trajectory for every Christian. It's as, as, as if God has set up and destined and sovereignly given a decree that we would look like him and in the beginning of our lives, our Christian lives. He's given us everything necessary to make that reality its outcome. Look what he says. He says, it's done this through the knowledge of him who called us. And it is verse four, by which he has granted us his, very pre- his precious and very great promises. Now you can create an entire list of a variety of different things and trying to dig out the depths of what exactly Peter's talking about there. What are these precious and very great promises? One of the things that I can tell you most assuredly is that he doesn't list them here. He doesn't list them here. But what he does instead is he gives us two consequences of these promises. And so you could, you could preach a great sermon on what these promises are, but that would be not what he's saying. So let's move on to look at what the consequences of them are. The second half of verse four, he says, he's given you these promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The first thing he says these very great promises are gonna create are to make us partakers of the divine nature. Now the ESV is rendering this partakers, but it's really this understanding of the idea of fellowship. We can have fellowship with God through the knowledge of Jesus because God has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And this is how it works. You can have fellowship with God. You know, this is a a terrible and wonderful thing at the same time. It's terrible because we recognize God is, is sovereign and he is holy and he is the mighty creator God of all things, right? And so when we approach God, when we come close to God, we recognize we can only approach him in that understanding of who he is. And so we approach him by, by the road of, by via Jesus. So approaching him in this, we recognize that we have fellowship with him and we enjoy the persistent, continued fellowship with him by virtue of the presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives. And we studied this a couple of weeks ago. And so God's Holy Spirit in your life is is giving constant testimony to a couple of different things. One, it's giving constant testimony to the fact that you belong to him. If you are a Christian, God's Holy Spirit is testifying over and again to you that you belong to Jesus. That by virtue of salvation in his name, you are a child of God. And so his Holy Spirit is continually communicating the testimony of this to you. And then it's also when you live a life outside of resembling this testimony... When you engage in sin, and this could be whatever it is, the sin of disbelief, uh, just kind of waywardness, 
kind of an open relationship with the truth or whatever it is, an open relationship in terms of strict morality. Then His Holy Spirit looks at you and it says, what are you doing? You don't at this very moment begin to look anything like, you don't resemble anything like Jesus. What exactly do you think you're doing? And so it's doing that, it's reminding us of who we are. And because of who we are, because of whose we are, we recognize that our life looks decidedly different than it would if we didn't belong to Jesus. And so when our life begins to resemble more of the world than of Jesus, his Holy Spirit comes in and says, this is who you are, this other stuff is not who you are. Come back and live a life in accordance with the true dictate and the mandate of who you are. Let your identity rest solely in Jesus. We had this, uh, we are partakers of his divine nature. And look at the other good news. It says these promises have made us partakers. We enjoy the fellowship with God. And these promises have allowed us to escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians are impervious to decay, right? That we somehow have this Kevlar vest of spirituality. That somebody comes up and they pour, they pour kind of the, the red Kool-Aid of of sin on our white carpet of holiness. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to think of all the illustrations that would have worked in my childhood. Right? I couldn't keep red Kool-Aid in the cup. It always wanted to be on the carpet. But it doesn't work this way. It would be great if it did. That if sinfulness came towards you and, right, and, and, and bad attitudes came towards you, they were just repelled because you had this bulletproof vest of spirituality. It would be amazing in some sense, if it happened this way. But God, in his sovereignty, knew that this would be unhelpful for us. And so in essence, he wants us to see the devastating effect of sin. We can see it in the lives of, of our family members who don't know Jesus. We can see it in the manner of our former existence of life. And we can see it in this episodic return to our former manner. In this, I mean, we can see the devastating effect of sin every time we turn to follow sin instead of following Jesus. It's alluring, it's palatable, it's wonderful, but it has a half-life, it's short-lived, it's devastating. And it wants you to be a person you're not. It wants you to live out a testimony that's not really who you are because you are his, because you enjoy a fellowship with his divine nature and you have escaped final, full destruction. For all those outside of the knowledge of Jesus, for all those who have not been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness, there awaits one place, and the Bible refers plainly to this place as hell. It's forever separated from the love of God. Forever destined to spend eternity suffering as a result of your sin, and your sin having not been atoned for by the blood of Jesus. No gracious second chances, no one more opportunity. It's finally fully removed from God, destined to spend eternity in hell. So this is bad news for those who refuse to believe. This is great news for those who do. But it also increases in us a sense of, of mission enterprise and of sadness for all of our lost friends and family members, for our sons, for our daughters, for our spouses, for our cousins, for our neighbors, and for anyone else outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so at the same time we're rejoicing in the good thing God has done for us, we are mourning and sorrowful, wanting that good work to be done in the lives of those around us. Amen. And so we recognize, even at the outset of our understanding and the impetus for spiritual growth, we recognize that God needs, 
and, and wants us to serve and to communicate the gospel so that others can join with us in this growth, the movement towards looking more like Jesus. So this is the gracious thing God has given you. It's kind of, a, kind of an open and shut case. God has granted you all things pertaining to life and godliness. It's just like the shortest discipleship lesson ever given. Hey, Matt, can you tell me what it looks like to look like, what it is to look like Jesus? Well, yeah, yeah. So Peter says that God's given you everything. Uh, so I guess we don't need to meet anymore. Oh, that's, that's good. Are you still going to buy lunch? No. Lunch would have been if it was extended to the five-minute mark, but this is the 30-second discipleship lesson. So we recognize, right, that, that in the main, God has given you everything concerning life, pertaining to life and godliness. But he allows us to come alongside and to begin to grow in the things that he's given us. And of those things, he lists eight various uh, virtues or positive attributes. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And so these things are bookended with faith and love. So what begins in faith ends in love. What begins internally moves externally. You can read in Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, and he's going through and he's detailing 13 different attributes that he loved to incorporate. And so he creates uh, a matrix, uh, so to speak, and he tracks his days and he tracks how he does and as he moves through these things. And he does really well in some of them and he finds others of them uh, more difficult. But one, one, one story in particular that was interesting a friend shared with me is that he has a, a friend who is a Quaker, and the Quaker friend comes up to him and says, have you noticed that, that, uh, that you're a little bit prideful? And so he argues with him. He says, no, I haven't noticed this. I'm not prideful. And he says, well, then my friend went on to show me several examples of how exactly that I was prideful. And so I relented and decided that I should seek to combat my pridefulness by striving to attain to humility. And in, uh, in his journal, he has a little note there where he defines humility, and he says, uh, humility, imitate Jesus and Socrates. Socrates. I don't know a ton about him, but this is great. And so imitate Jesus and Socrates. And so he describes kind of going in and doing this thing. And I just want to share this one little line that he has uh, in terms of pursuing humility. He says, I cannot boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, but I had a good deal with regard to the appearance of it. <laughs> Do you see the, the turn there? If we were to take these attributes, and man, you don't know Jesus, you don't walk and follow Jesus, and you're just to take these attributes, and on the surface of them, you're to say, I'm going to display faith, I'm going to display virtue and knowledge and all these things. You can fool a lot of people. You could do an amazing job displaying the outward manifestation of these things. But recognize this, that they're not these things that you move through and you perfect this one, then you perfect the next one, you perfect the next one. All these things are already yours. God has made all of these things already to flourish in your heart. This is you moving and appropriating, in a very real sense, making real and applicable in your daily life the things he's made true of you in your eternal life. But some of us are merely satisfied giving the guise or looking like we have these things. And so what I would say to that is that our prayers need to be more urgent, asking the Holy Spirit, help me not to be satisfied that people walk up and say that you are a person of faith, but actually instead to be a person of faith. So let's begin to, to look at these and, and just to unpack these just a little bit. He says, for this very reason, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. 
Make every effort. In 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9, there's this understanding that we could fall too hard on the one side of, of just saying, man, God has given me everything as it pertains to life and godliness, and so there's nothing on me to do anything. And in some sense, this is absolutely true. God has accomplished everything for you in Jesus. He's given you uh, the greatest starting point in the world. He's given you everything. His gracious investment, everything. You showed zero potential. You were dead and in the dark, and he made you alive and called you into light. He has given you everything. But along with his gracious investment, along with this, he says, now you need to work your tail off. You need to do everything you possibly can. Everything you possibly can. Make every effort. Every effort. He's not calling us to some lackadaisical approach of spirituality. He's not calling us to, to, to half-heartedness, right? He's calling us to a, a full-bore investment of everything we have. And when we begin to take stock, when we begin to evaluate, what exactly do I work hard at? What exactly do I invest all of my energies in? What I think we'll find, if we're honest, what I think we'll find, most of us, if we're honest, is that very few of us give every effort. We give a sufficient effort. We give an adequate effort. We give the appearance of an effort. And all of these things, every time we do this, fails to live up to the measure of all that he has given us. In essence, this is what this passage calls us to do. When we reflect upon the gracious investment of our God in us, we joyously make every effort. If, on the other hand, you look at God and say, you are a hideous taskmaster who's never satisfied with my best works, we are bitter and angry when he calls us to do something. But if we have a right view of God, if we have a right view of his gracious investment in us, that he's given you everything. He's made you his, he's made you whole, he's forgiven you, he's given you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. And this is what he asks of you, that you do likewise. You make every effort. So this is something only you can know. Now we can clearly look at your life when you're in you know, sin and, 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 and you're just living in sin and we can say they don't seem to be making every effort. But it's very difficult for us to look at you and determine whether or not you're just giving the guise of these things or, in fact, you are living them and ingesting them and making them your life. So he says, make every effort to supplement your faith, your trust in God. God desires for you to grow in your faith. The faith that, that brought you to salvation is sufficient to carry you through, but we recognize in ever-increasing measure there are things that God asks us to exercise our faith in. Some of us, God has called us to do incredibly difficult things. So he's calling you and your family to uproot and move to the mission field. He's calling you to leave your job that pays so well and to take a lesser paying job so that you can give more of your time to your family, more of your time to your neighbors, and more of your time investing in his work. And this is difficult because you've given your life to pursuing this career and pursuing this goal. And in this exercise of following God, it requires a radical increase in your faith. Is God faithful? Will he provide? Will he meet me at this place? 
Look what he says. He says, we're to supplement our faith with virtue. Now, this is the same word uh, used above that's rendered excellence. It's rendered excellence. So make every effort to supplement, to grow your moral excellence is, is what he's getting at here. And so we can, uh, probably most of us, find areas of our lives we are morally ambiguous, right? We don't like to talk about those. We like to kind of hang out and do these things on our own. But probably most of us have some area of our life where we say, it just doesn't matter anymore. Or we take the other approach. We simply fail to critically evaluate our moral standing and the things we engage in, either in our speech or our behavior, or those things that we condone by virtue of the company we keep, right? So, but this is what he says. I'm giving you everything in life pertaining to life and godliness, and this is what I'm asking of you, to make every effort to supplement your moral excellence, to supplement your virtue. No, virtue, I can tell you, isn't, isn't just a very sexy topic anymore. It's not something that, that, that just gets people very excited. It's not something culturally that people are just rushing towards and say, oh, I just want to, I'm going to start a virtue society. Would you like to join? And, and I got news for you. Nobody wants to. And so what he's calling you to do is to pursue faith, to pursue moral excellence, and to encourage others to do likewise. None of these growth habits happen in a vacuum. None of these growth habits happen individually. All of these happen and are directed corporately. And so it's all of us working together. Now, this doesn't mean that, that if, if you see somebody post something and you just smack them upside the back of the head, it might mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. This is more the gracious encouragement of one another to pursue moral excellence. And look what he adds to it. He says, and with knowledge. He's not talking about just, just knowledge for information's sake, but growing in the knowledge of God, growing in the knowledge of who he is. And the more we grow in the knowledge of who God is, and we begin to recognize that, that, that our lives aren't living up to what we're learning, we begin to change how we're living. We begin to change how we're engaging and begin to follow him because we want to grow in the knowledge of him. And knowledge is only effective, it's only helpful if it moves to the point of application. Otherwise, we're just getting puffed up and just knowing a lot of stuff. He says, and with knowledge add self-control. Well, self-control. Well, self-control can be applied to any number of things in our lives. And, but what you have to ask yourself is what areas of my life am I not even entering into the rubric of self-control? What am I not evaluating to ask if I'm out of control? And many of us, what we'll find is that a number of different things, the way we spend our money, and the way we spend our time, we have no self-control. The way we invest on social media, we have no self-control. We are absolutely addicted and prone to these things, prone to just staring at a small screen and not being profitable or engaging for anyone. There, there's no shortage of things that we could run through, and I could just offend all of you and have you come up one at a time. Hey, what do you struggle with? Well, I struggle with this. Friends, let's yell at them for 30 minutes and say, Have self-control! but I'd find that many of you would slip out the back and I would slip out the front because this just doesn't sound like much fun. But what we need to be is a people dependent upon the spirit of God to say, God, what areas of my life am I not relenting? What areas of my life am I not dependent upon you? Would you bring me self-control? Show me those areas of my life where I'm uh, running off the lines, where I'm not uh, honoring you in terms of self-control. Look what he says next. He says, steadfastness. This idea of patient endurance, that we would be a people in the pursuit of these things who would not give up. 
Steadfastness and endurance is just sticking with something that's hard. It is easy to stick with things that are 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 that have no great consequence, no great cost associated with you. As a kid, I could eat just limitless supplies of cotton candy. I mean, this is this is not a joke. This is serious. I mean, so. I, I, if you challenged me and you said, we want to see you eat an entire cotton candy worth uh, in a day produced in one of these little cotton candy stands, I would have gladly done it. I would have had no teeth left at the end of the day. But that's the type of task that I would have greatly been desirous to give myself to. I would have loved it because I love cotton candy. Now, cotton candy, if, if you know anything about it, if you take it and you crush it into a little ball, it's just like chewing sugar, which is even better. And so I would probably have said, can we move off cotton candy to just eating sugar cubes? It was a great failure as a parent. One of my kids a couple of weeks ago said, what's that? And I said, that's a sugar cube. You want to try it? And he put it in his mouth. He said, this is too sweet. This is disgusting. He would not excel at steadfastness in terms of eating sugar cubes. <laughs> but I, I, I would and I probably still would if my dentist didn't attend this church. <laughs> but steadfastness in terms of spirituality, it's really easy for us to sprint in terms of spirituality, week to week, or Christmas to Easter, or summertime, or camp experience, or three-day retreat, or fasting on Mondays as we lead up to Easter. But that's not steadfastness. That's not endurance. That's just momentarily, briefly withstanding something difficult. And can I tell you the gracious and wonderful thing about our God is those things that are difficult for us today, if you will exercise the discipline of being steadfast, will move beyond being difficult to being a delight. And then God will alert, he will awaken you, he will show you other things that are currently (laughs) way beyond the pale, way beyond your ability to understand and conceive that he would call you to do those things. This is what it looks like to be in a relationship with Jesus. That as he apprises my life, as I look at my life, that I say, God, nothing is off limits for you. Nothing is kept safe from you. You can move in any area of my life that you want to. And he says, okay, well, you've invited me in. And here he comes, and he's occupying uh, an area of my life that's particularly difficult, particularly uncomfortable. But if I'm going to be faithful to him, then I have to stay steadfast in that time. And so my prayer turns, and it's, Holy Spirit, this stinks. This is absolutely the worst thing in the world. I'm never praying for patience again. Why would you do this? I don't actually want to be close to you. I just want to have the guise of being close to you. I don't want to actually be spiritual. I just want to have the guise of being spiritual. So he calls us to steadfastness. And as we remain steadfast, he calls us to godliness. That somebody could walk up to you on the street and say, Jim, you look a lot like Jesus. James, you look a lot like Jesus. Beth, you look a lot like Jesus. Kaylee, you look a lot like Jesus. I don't really know Jesus, but if he's anything like you, then I want to know this man. This is what he calls us to. And it's this amazing thing that God has given you what you need to get there. And so what he calls us to in this making every effort is, is, is applying yourself, dedicating your time, dedicating your energy, dedicating your focus leveraging everything you've got into this, the pursuit of godliness. Pursuit of godliness, which Paul says is great gain. Look as he moves from the internals to the externals. 
And imagine what it would be like if we were a church full of people uh, pursuing faith and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness. And he turns and he moves to the externals and he says, and added this brotherly affection. This is particularly interesting because Peter writes to a group of people who saw great uh, discord with people outside of their families. And so there's no, hey, we're all in this. We're all just one big happy village together. And so there's, there's a spirit of competition between this family and that family, kind of the Hatfields and McCoys understanding of things. And so to those people, he comes and he says, as Christians, as people made whole and saved and being conformed to the image of God, as Christians, you have been entered into, been joined to a larger family of faith. And so you have brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what he's primarily talking about in this is being joined together with one another in brotherly affection, being kind and char- charitable to one another, investing in the lives of those around you and seeing that they have needs and moving to meet these needs and having needs and sharing needs. So moving from the internal to the external. And so then he couples it, he bookends it with the idea of love. It's important to note that he's not talking about love in terms of, of, of an emotion. He's talking about love in terms of being visited upon those around you. Now, I think he's making a distinction here because he's talking about brotherly love, which would be that thing that, that, that habitates in the church, which would be that thing that, that we're kind of known for, loving one another, not cannibalizing one another as we've sometimes been known as, but loving one another. And then he turns and he says, well, what about those outside? And he says, Pray that God would help you to grow, to make every effort to love those around you. And this is where the gospel begins to be transformative, not just internally uh, in us, not just internally in us as a church, but externally in the world as we move and engage and rub shoulders with the world. That we would be known primarily as a people of love. That we'd be known as a people, not, not, not just for the things that we're against, but more for the things that we are for. That we are for people coming to know Jesus. That we are for the impact of our community. That we are for the transformation of this world. That we are for the alleviation of sickness. That we are for positively impacting homelessness. That we are for all the various things that you can think of. And we are for these things because of Jesus. He says, make every effort. Make every effort. We begin to think about our lives and all the various things that, that ask of my time and my resources. And to say, are those things and the things that are requiring much of me, keeping me from making every effort? Or are they structured in such a way as to make the ability for me to expend effort less? I fill up all my time working. I fill up all my time with family, and I simply have no margin for anything else. I have no ability to, to make a massive expenditure of my efforts because there's not much left to give. And this may be an indication for some of us, and you've got to cut back on some stuff. You've got to find a way that God can move in your life because by giving him greater margins in your life. So he moves through in verses 8 and 9. He begins to kind of give us the consequence of understanding these things. He says, For if if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If 
if as a Christian you stay close to the fact that God has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness, you will grow closer to Jesus. You will not lead an ineffective or an unfruitful life if you stay close to these things. If you stay close to these things, then God will necessarily lead you to the expansion of these virtues in your life because you're so close to the gracious investment of God that you can't help but keep to move and displaying and and engaging these other things over the course of your life. But of course we recognize that there's always the possibility that you not do these things. That you not give any great account to the fact that God has granted you all things pertaining to life and godliness. There's, There's the very real possibility that beyond that, that you won't supplement You won't make any effort to supplement any of these things in your life. And so look at what he says here at the last bit. He says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. He says, you become incredibly myopic to the point of not being able to see anything. You are blind. And this is where your blindness has stemmed from. You've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. When we have a righteous gratitude towards God, because of his investment in cleansing us from our sins, there is only one choice for us, and it's to grow ever closer to him. So it seems to be that what Peter is saying here is when we find ourselves not growing closer to Jesus, it stems from primarily the failure to be thankful and to think on the forgiveness that we have received from Jesus, having been cleansed from who he used to be. And sometimes, sometimes you'll find yourself, and, and you just feel worthless. You feel like sin is winning the victory. You feel like there's no way out for you. You feel like your Christianity is a sham. And this is what that is evidence of. It's evidence of the enemy winning primarily a victory in you. This is what Peter's calling you to do. Reflect on the fact that you have been cleansed, not your current failure. Reflect on on the reality that you have been made whole and forgiven and graciously invested with everything pertaining to life and godliness, not your current lack of desire. Sanctification and moving towards Jesus is a work of the Spirit in your life. And so what we are called to do in those times is be more dependent upon the Spirit, less dependent upon ourselves so that we might grow. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and opportunity to study your word together. Father, I pray for those who are burdened, feeling like they have failed, that they would recognize your great love for them. Father, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you in salvation, that they would see the gracious invitation of Jesus to come and receive forgiveness, to come and to be made whole. And Father, that they would respond positively to the gospel. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would cause us to desire to grow, to become more like you. And God, I'm more dependent upon your spirit as we do. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.